Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Income Driven Repayment Overhaul, the backdoor student loan forgiveness the media isn't talking about. Please welcome Dr. Lindsay Burke, Director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. Good morning. It's still the morning, right? It's 11. All right. Good morning. Thanks, everybody, for being here today. Uh, Very excited about this panel. I know it's a wonky-sounding panel, and so really impressed that you're all here to dig into the numbers around IDR. So the big question before us is, does the Department of Education have the legal authority to unilaterally cancel half a trillion dollars in student loan debt? At least that's the question the media talks about. The question the Supreme Court considered in February was just that, and we eagerly await the answer. The answer to whether or not the Biden administration can just wipe out hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan debt without direct authorization from Congress. That's rightly garnered significant media attention, but lurking in the background are rules that could be just as consequential. This plan B, student loan debt cancellation, making income-driven repayment significantly more generous, may have actually been, as one of our panelists, Jason Delisle, suggested recently, the administration's plan A for loan forgiveness. Loan cancellation, debt amnesty, whether through direct cancellation or changes to IDR, is regressive, expensive, and potentially illegal. Many individuals made a conscious decision not to attend college to avoid debt. These efforts would foist someone else's debt onto them. Working and middle-income Americans who chose not to go to college or who responsibly paid off their student loans should not be forced to pay off the loans of, of others. And let's be honest, student loan forgiveness, as Inez Stepman put it, forces working Americans to pay off the woke managerial class. But you all knew that. And so again, why I'm excited to be here today is to really dig into the numbers, to get deeper on what this will mean in terms of cost to Americans, and to get more information on what it means about the choices individual borrowers make when it comes to the degrees and the line of study that they're choosing. We have a fantastic panel today. I'll introduce them, and then they'll come up after that. We'll hear from Preston Cooper, who is Senior Fellow in Higher Education at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, where he studies college affordability and degree return on investment. Prior to joining FREOP, Preston worked at the Manhattan Institute and the American Enterprise Institute, and in 2016, he joined Forbes as a contributor. And in 2019, he started working on his PhD in economics at George Mason University. Jason Delisle is non-resident senior fellow at the Center on Education Data and Policy at the Urban Institute, where he focuses on higher education finance and regulation. Prior to joining Urban, Jason worked in the office of former U.S. Representative Thomas Petri and then as an analyst for the U.S. Senate Committee on the Budget. He previously held positions at New America and the American Enterprise Institute. Andrew Gillen is Senior Policy Analyst at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and an Adjunct Professor of Economics at Johns Hopkins University. 
Andrew's work focuses on how to reform federal financial aid and how state disinvestment is a myth and how post-college earnings and debt should be used to inform student choice and government accountability. Prior to joining TPPF, Andrew held positions at the Charles Koch Foundation, the American Institutes for Research, Education Sector, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, and the Center for College Affordability and Productivity. Finally, Paul Zimmerman is policy counsel at the Defense of Freedom Institute, where he focuses on federal agency transparency and oversight efforts. Prior to joining DFI, Paul was counsel at the U.S. Department of Commerce, where he coordinated agency responses from oversight entities, and prior to that, worked for over a decade in multiple roles at the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. I want to also thank the Defense of Freedom Institute for co-hosting this event with us and for their leadership in pushing back against the Biden administration's ongoing executive branch overreach in a variety of areas. We're going to have a nice uh, Q&A session with our panelists today. They do have some uh, formal data prepared to show you, but we want to keep it relatively conversational today. I'm going to start with Preston to frame IDR, income-driven repayment. As I said in the opening, this is a major issue that is getting really, maybe not zero, but extremely limited coverage considering the scope. So can you walk us through the changes? What does this mean? What exactly is the Biden administration trying to do? Absolutely. So I have a couple slides prepared. I don't know if we can uh, get the projection up or do oh, I press this? Oh, it's on the side there. Yep, there oh, right. it's over on the yes. side. Okay. <laughs> it's invisible to me. So, all right. <laughs> uh, there we go. So, uh, yeah, as Lindsay said, I want to start by just walking us through, you know, what income-driven repayment is and what changes the Biden administration is making. So uh, let me just start by going over the current version uh, of IDR. And basically, right now, when you... Uh, graduate and you start repaying your student loans, you're automatically put in what's called the standard plan, which is just like a mortgage you pay over 10 years. Uh, you should be fully paying off your loan within 10 years with interest if you choose that plan. But if you choose, you can also go into what's called an income-driven repayment plan. And in that case, the amount that you're paying back is not at all linked to your balance or your interest rate. It's instead linked to what your income is. Uh, and so under the most current, uh, most uh, generous current IDR plan, which is called pay, Basically, you will pay 10% of your income above 150% of the federal poverty line, which is about $22,000 for a single person in, uh, in uh, 2023. Um, and so this is already a fairly generous plan. So the Congressional Budget Office has, uh, has projected that uh, we're going to forgive about $200 billion in uh, loans under IDR plans over the next uh, 10 years, even, if, uh, even before taking into account the Biden administration's changes. About 80% of that forgiven balance is going to go to graduate students. So it's um, a fairly expensive program already, and it's also going to people who uh, don't necessarily uh, need the help, a lot of people with graduate degrees. The Biden administration is kind of going to take that and just ratchet it up to 11. So uh, you can see on the right panel of that chart there, uh, what the uh, Biden administration is going to do is it's going to raise that exemption of income from 150% of the federal poverty line to 225% of the federal poverty line so that you will be paying nothing if you make below $33,000 a year for a single person. And that's about the median earnings for somebody with an associate degree. So that's already, you're kind of getting free community college there because people who are getting the median earnings for somebody with a community college degree are probably going to be paying nothing towards their loans. 
And then above that threshold, 225% of the federal poverty line, if you have undergraduate loans, you're going to be paying 5% of your income. If you have graduate loans, you're going to be paying uh, 10% of your income. And remaining balances are going to be completely discharged after a period ranging from 10 to 25 years, depending, one, on how much you borrowed, and uh, two, on whether you're getting uh, PSLF, public service loan forgiveness, or not. There's also a a secondary benefit here, which is interest forgiveness. So if your payment does not cover accrued interest on your loans, the remaining interest is going to be wiped out. So say that your your monthly scheduled payment under this new IDR plan is $50 a month, but your accrued interest is $100 a month, uh, that remaining $50 of unpaid interest is going to be wiped out. Um, And a lot of people are going to be getting that benefit because payments are just going to be set uh, so low. Um, so that's, uh, I can give you a little uh, chart here just to show you exactly what that is going to mean for borrowers at different income levels. Uh, the media will often describe this new IDR plan as cutting payments in half, and that is the very bare minimum. Most uh, borrowers are going to see their payments cut even more than in half. If you're making below uh, $33,000 a year, your payments are going to be reduced to zero, so that's 100% reduction in payments. And even if you're making you know, middle-class income, an upper income, uh, you're still going to be seeing your uh, monthly payments uh, reduced by more than half if you, have, uh, if you have undergraduate loans. So it really is you know, a fundamental change to the way we're doing student lending. I know Jason and Andrew are going to have more charts to show you exactly you know, how much of a subsidy this is going to be. Um, but I also just want to give you a sense before, uh, before I close out here of how much this is going to cost the federal government. So the official Education Department estimate uh, says that this will cost about $138 billion over 10 years. That is almost certainly a massive underestimate because it assumes that no borrowers who are currently choosing that standard mortgage-style plan are going to switch into IDR. Uh, it also assumes that colleges aren't going to raise their tuition at all in response to this, this hugely generous new plan. And it assumes that uh, the Biden student loan forgiveness is going to be upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, therefore, so fewer people will be choosing IDR because they're getting their loans forgiven. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office has come out with an independent estimate, which I think is much more reasonable. They say that if you inc- account for all of that stuff, it's going to cost more like $276 billion. Uh, the Penn Wharton budget model uh, says that if you have more uh, uh, liberal assumptions about how, this, uh, how many people are going to use this new IDR plan, it could cost as much as $490 billion. So, you know, a huge range of cost estimates, uh, but... Uh, they all agree that uh, it's probably going to cost a heck of a lot of money. So with that, I'll uh, give it back to Lindsay. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Preston. So Jason, I know you've done a ton of analysis on what the numbers actually look like when you dig into them, what this means for borrowers, particularly by income. Preston alluded to this. So can you walk us through those those numbers and scenarios? Yeah. So um, one you know, I think a major point here is that we've had an income-driven repayment option in the federal student loan program for, for quite some time, uh, a broad-based one since at least about 2009. Um, but the idea around that plan, if you look at the way people talked about it and the impetus for it and the motivation for creating that plan, is that it was supposed to be sort of a safety net. Um, and I think it, it largely was that. There are some flaws. There's some ways to improve on that. But I think what the Biden administration is doing, and what you'll see in some of my slides here with this change, is it's changing the program from a safety net to one that's sort of broadly subsidizing higher education through loan forgiveness. 
Um, and so it's a major policy change. I don't think we've, I don't think the higher education community, I don't think the policy community has really wrestled with what that means. Um, you know, one, one implication is I think we're going to be in a situation it, when once this takes effect of having to encourage people to take student loans. We've been in a culture of loans are bad. Um, but now, if you stand to have a lot of it forgiven, even if you're making the income you expected to make after getting out of school, well, now we have this strange dilemma of encouraging people to take loans. Um, so at the Urban Institute, when this policy was announced, um, at, at the Biden administration's new loan plan, we remember we had 30 days to look at it and then submit comments. And then the books were closed on public comments for the administration's proposal. So we did the best analysis we could in um, the 15 days that we had to actually get it all done and get, and get it out. Um, and this here is the conclusion of the paper. You can go uh, to the Urban Institute site and look at it. The conclusion is, once these changes go into effect, few college students will repay their student loans. What we did is, and, and the main effect here is for undergraduates. I will show you later on how the, the, the graduate students are actually largely unaffected by these changes. They still benefit heavily from income-driven repayment, but there isn't a big increase in benefit for them uh, in the plan. In fact, there may be actually a reduction. So big change here targeted on undergrads. And what we did is we looked at some data about what undergraduates earn when they get out of school using a data set from the Department of Education. Uh, and we assumed if they borrow the typical amount for them, not necessarily what they did borrow, but if they were to borrow the typical amount, how much would they repay? Uh, and we, we broke it down here in between to, to certificates and associate's degrees. And this is the share that they would repay, share of the debt repaid. Um, and then also bachelor's degrees. You can see under current IDR, an associate's or certificate degree student, uh, most of them, about 62%, will fully repay the loan. Uh, under the Biden administration's change, we estimate that only 11% will fully repay their loan. We think uh, the majority of those students will receive some loan forgiveness under income-driven repayment. So essentially, loan forgiveness will become the norm for these students. Uh, for bachelor's degree students, uh, for, for graduates, you know, 60% would fully repay their loans. Uh, now we would expect only 22%. So the typical bachelor's degree will, will have some, at least some of their loan forgiven. Um, now I'm going to run through a couple of quick examples of individual borrowers. This is sort of a distribution of all undergraduates, but let's let's take some individual examples that we've run some analyses on um, at the Urban Institute. So let's look at undergraduates. Let's take an undergraduate with $30,000 in debt and a starting income of $50,000. Um, this, this is not atypical, right, for someone who gets a bachelor's degree. This is kind of what we would expect the outcome to be uh, when they leave school. You can see on the left-hand side under current IDR, they borrow 30, they repay about $40,000, $41,000. I'm not discounting this for time, right? And uh, they have none forgiven, they fully repay. Uh, under the other, under the Biden plan, this borrower would have about $20,000 forgiven because the payments are so low. I'll run through a couple more examples. If we do debt of $12,000, income of $40,000, um, so we've lowered the income a little bit here, still no loan forgiveness under current IDR. Under the Biden plan, they're only going to pay about $6,000 of this $12,000 loan, uh, and they're going to have $11,000 forgiven. Uh, now, here's someone who might maybe say they dropped out, uh, dropped out of community college, maybe. They had, so they just have $5,000 in debt, and their income is $25,000 a year. They don't make a single payment under the Biden plan, and they have $7,500 in principal and interest forgiven. So they don't need to pay because their income isn't above this threshold 
that Preston talked about. So let me show you some graduate examples really quickly to wrap up. Remember how I said graduate borrowers are not really affected, and this is because they don't qualify for the lower share of their income towards their payment. So here's someone with $80,000 in debt, starting income of $65,000. These are basically the same, right, uh, under current IDR uh, and the Biden uh, administration. And one of the reasons here, too, is that under the Biden administration's plan, you have to pay for 25 years before you get your loans forgiven if it's a graduate loan. That's actually that's an extension. Uh, the current policy is 20. Now, my last slide here is the place where graduate students will benefit from the Biden administration proposal uh, plan is under public service loan forgiveness. Under public service loan forgiveness, if you use income-driven repayment, you pay for 10 years, you have any remaining debt forgiven. So graduate borrowers are going to get, they're going to make lower payments uh, under income-driven repayment. They get this larger exemption, this 225% of poverty. Um, but they're still going to get their loans forgiven after 10 years. So this is a little wild. This one takes, <laughs> so this is someone who gets public service loan forgiveness. You can see how generous current IDR is already under public service loan forgiveness for someone with graduate debt. They would have about $56,000 of this debt forgiven. Under the Biden plan, that jumps to about 72000 under public service, again, because they're going to make lower payments and they don't have a longer time frame. So really the big action here is on the undergraduate side and I think the 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 sort of the, the message here is that given the extent of loan forgiveness and the amount this reduces how much people are going to pay we're sort of moving to a system of broad subsidies uh, through income driven repayment. That last chart is breathtaking and maddening. Uh, Andrew, <laughs> so I know you've done just as much modeling. Can you tell us a little bit about how this varies by level of degree that a student pursues, a borrower pursues? Yeah, so the the impact by degree really depends on which of the, the changes is going to affect those students the most. Um, and so remember, Preston talked about uh, really three three main changes. So we're we're shortening the income, the share of income that students have to repay for at least some some portion of students. Uh, we're shortening the length of time they have to repay, and we're also exempting more income from having to make any payments. So if you get all three of those you're gonna get like an exponential increase in generosity of this plan. If you're only getting one of them, you get kind of a slight increase in generosity. So, so the, the, the impact on students depends on how many of those three uh, boxes they check. Uh, and so, so this, uh, this first chart, uh, so this this is just kind of making a, a point. So I, I've, I've keyed in on two of the two of the the changes. Uh, first, the the income exemption, and you can see that along the bottom axis. And, and you can see that over time, as we've increased, as we've introduced new new uh, income-driven repayment plans, we, we've gotten more and more generous over time. So we're, we're moving further and further away from the from the origin on that x-axis, and that means that more and more income is kind of shielded from any repayment whatsoever. At the same time, over time, we're flattening the slope of those lines. Uh, so of the of the remaining income that we are uh, uh, paying, we're we're paying even less. So if you look at the far the far side, so the eighty thousand dollars of income, look at how, look at what those students are paying under the Biden plan. I think that's two fifty. I can't see it from from here. I think it's about two fifty. Uh, under the original income driven repayment plan, which is called income contingent repayment, introduced in nineteen ninety four, uh, they were paying I believe over a thousand dollars. Uh, so this is this is kind of a massive, massive change, uh, uh, depending on how many uh, of those boxes you check. Uh, so, so this uh, this this chart here just basically shows you uh, the change in a student's first payment 
uh, that kind of that first month's payment uh, under these various plans. And you, and you can see that for the associate's degree students, they're really, really seeing their payments reduced. And most of that is becoming uh, coming because of the income exemption amount. So changing from 150% of the poverty line to 225%. Uh, bachelor's degree, you still see a, a debt. Master's degree, you see a debt. Uh, but when you when you go to professional degree, uh, the, the change there is really going to be driven by the, uh, the, the, the forgiveness provisions uh, and, and kind of the, the, the interaction of all those. Uh, and you can see this even more clearly in this chart here. Uh, so this is this is kind of uh, if you follow the the congressional budget office, this is based on the the con how the congressional budget office would consider subsidy rates. Uh, and so for associate's degrees, we're taking a, a loan that the CBO considers technically makes the government a profit under under any of the existing income driven repayment plans. And now governments are going to make a massive loss on those loans. Uh, the same thing happens with uh, with professional degrees. Interestingly, the opposite happens with master's degrees. So master's degrees are actually going make the government more of a profit uh, than, than was the case before. And, and we'll, we'll see the reason for that in these, in these next couple of slides. Uh, so in these, in these next slides, I'm, I'm showing kind of three panels here. So the top panel is just monthly payment over under the, the, the different um, uh, repayment plans. Second panel, the middle panel, is the present value of all the cumulative payments to date. Uh, as a percent of the original loan. Uh, so if you go above 100%, that means that the government considers that it's making a, a profit on that loan. Uh, and then the bottom panel is just kind of the, the loan balance. Uh, and so this, this first chart is for a uh, bachelor's degree in finance studio arts. Uh, and what we can see is that the, the payments vary quite a bit. Uh, so, is, so if you're standard loan payment or income-driven repayment, uh, basically your, your kind of payments will, will increase until you reach the standard payment amount. Uh, and, and all those existing uh, in, income-driven repayment plans, uh, the government actually, you, you pay off your loan, the government makes a profit. Uh, but that changes with the Biden IDR program. Under, under the Biden IBR, this, this student will not pay a dime of their principal. They'll still pay a lot of interest, uh, but the government will actually make a, a, a considerable loss on that. Now compare that to these charts, which is for a bachelor's and nursing degree. These students pay off their loans uh, completely, and because they pay for slightly longer under the Biden plan, they, the government actually will make more of a profit on bachelor's and nursing degrees uh, under these. And then last one I want to look at is, uh, so this is a professional degree in law. Uh, so we go from a situation where uh, the students pay off their loans under the standard repayment plan or under income driven repayment. They don't repay it under repay, uh, and they don't repay it under the Biden plan. Uh, but under repay, interestingly, the government will still make a profit on these loans uh, because the student will pay so much interest over time. That is no longer the case uh, uh, under the Biden plan. Uh, so this is basically a subsidy for, for law school students as well. Thanks, Andrew. So, Paul, is this? These are significant changes. Is it a fait accompli? What What's the legal situation? The challenges? Can you walk through what the court, uh, the oral arguments in February, and what that means for IDR potentially? Sure, Lindsay, and thanks so much for hosting us. Thanks to the Heritage Foundation. Um, so, uh, on the current legal challenges in the Supreme Court. Uh, on the mass student loan forgiveness, um, I would just say, based on the oral arguments, uh, that it looked like a clear majority of the court was skeptical uh, of uh, the president's power to uh, unilaterally cancel uh, student loans under the HEROES Act. 
Uh, I think that Justice Barrett had a few questions and a few doubts on the standing of the states uh, uh, based on the student loan servicer uh, Mohila, which was not actually in court. Uh, but I did not hear from the uh, five justice, uh, uh, five justices in the conservative wing of the court, uh, really too much skepticism on the standing issue, uh, and really they were focused on the merits, uh, which means to me I think there's a good chance uh, that in June uh, the mass student loan uh, cancellation uh, program will be struck down. Uh, so uh, what what does that leave in its wake? Well, I think basically you're moving out a wolf that's dressed like a wolf, uh, which is the mass student loan forgiveness program, uh, which is kind of a political payout uh, uh, to, to voters. And then you're putting in place a wolf dressed as a sheep, which is uh, uh, this, this uh, untargeted grant program that is dressed up as a repayment program uh, under uh, income-driven repayment. Um, and so uh, what, what are the potential legal avenues for, for challenging uh, IDR uh, under the Biden administration's proposal? Well, I think I, I, I just talk about in the interest of time, uh, one major challenge, which is under the major questions doctrine, uh, as formulated by the Supreme Court in West Virginia versus EPA. It's a separation of powers principle uh, under it. The court uh, requires that if an agency is going to regulate uh, on a matter of vast economic and political significance, uh, that it point to clear congressional authorization under uh, a statute uh, to do so. Um, I think that there's no question, based on what we've just heard, that this is a matter of uh, vast economic and political significance. Uh, the economic significance uh, in, in the hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in admitted cost uh, of this plan in terms of political significance, I think they're really taking an issue away from Congress that is very, very uh, widely being debated uh, in Congress right now through numerous proposals. Uh, and the executive is attempting to unilaterally regulate on this issue. But also, uh, it, it's going to reorganize incentives of borrowers across the country. Uh, and it's really going to reorganize the financing of higher education. So uh, once you get past the uh, significance hurdle, uh, I think things become a little bit trickier for people challenging this statute because when you look at uh, challenging this rule, excuse me, um, because when you look at this statute giving uh, the authorization uh, to the Department of Education to formulate these rules, it's very broad. And I think we'll, we'll hear a little bit more on that. But uh, uh, it's, it's very broad authority that gives the secretary the power to craft income-driven repayment plans, income-contingent repayment plans, uh, with the only real guardrail being a maximum repayment period of 25 years. Um, so I, I think the secretary can point to that statute, say, look, I have all the authorization I need. And I think really where a challenger is going to have to be successful is saying, look, this is a difference in not just in degree from other uh, past repayment plans. This is unprecedented. This is a difference in kind. Uh, and uh, Congress never envisioned this in the early 1990s when it gave uh, the secretary uh, and the department this power um, to craft income contingent repayment plans that this would be turned into uh, a grant program, an untargeted grant program. Um, so I think that uh, it, it, it's going to be an uphill battle, potentially. It's not going to be uh, as strong of a case as uh, the case against mass student 
uh, loan debt cancellation. Uh, I think that there are other viable challenges uh, and there are standing issues that I think we'll get to. Um, but really, it might be an area where I think uh, Congress uh, is really going to have to step up to the plate um, and it's really going to have to consider limiting the uh, secretary's discretion uh, under this program. Thanks, Paul. I, I love it when lawyers can translate things in plain English. So uh, well done. So we're going to do a quick little lightning round, max two minutes each. And uh, Preston, so Paul just now said this is going to reorganize incentives for borrowers. So can you talk a little bit potentially about the impact long term on the price of college and then maybe some of the moral hazard issues that are implicit in this? Of course, yeah. So as uh, J uh, Jason's chart showed, you know, most borrowers are going to be getting some forgiveness under this new income-driven repayment plan. And that means for 80% of borrowers, if you do not borrow the maximum amount from the federal government, you are leaving money on the table. So <laughs> that, I mean, that really changes the incentives for borrowers. You know, right now, believe it or not, about 40, 45% of college students do not borrow. And that proportion is closer to 75%, 80% at community colleges. But now, if you're not borrowing, you are leaving money on the table. And so what incentives does that create for colleges? Suddenly, students are leaving money on the table if they don't borrow. That means that colleges are going to find it easier uh, to raise tuition in order to capture these new loan dollars from the federal government, which are then going to be forgiven. It's basically this kind of crazy Rube Goldberg machine subsidy, but <laughs> it really is, um, you know, offering what is essentially free college uh, through the back door. Um, and so I really worry, you know, uh, as Lindsay said about the moral hazard implications of this, that you know, if colleges are able to raise tuition to capture this additional uh, dollars, they're not going to be liable for the outcomes that students are experiencing after the fact. Um, that that we could be in a very bad situation where the government is essentially subsidizing uh, the pretty much the entire cost of uh, some degrees that are simply uh, costing too much and not delivering enough. And I think if we're going to fix this, we need to really um, you know take a step back and think about what are student loans supposed to be for. Student loans are supposed to be a tool for investment. They're supposed to be a loan you take out, make an investment in education in order to increase your earnings capacity over the long term. Um, and so we, what we really need to do is to say to colleges, you know, if you want to benefit from this, this student loan program that the federal government is offering, you need to make sure that that investment is actually paying off. You need to make sure that students are getting an increase in earnings that is enough to fully repay their loans with interest. Uh, and if not, uh, then perhaps you shouldn't be getting unfettered access to the federal student loan program anymore. And until we have colleges take at least some responsibility for those outcomes, uh, we're just going to uh, keep repeating this, this crisis that we have. Here, here. Uh, so, Jason, lessons learned. Uh, is the Biden administration really to blame, or is it Congress's fault? Did they plant the seeds? For yeah, this? well, yeah. I mean, Paul, Paul alluded to this, and, and he did a good, good job of ex explaining it. And I'll just sort of reiterate, like, the, the, this plan, this income-driven payment plan that the Biden administration is implementing, they are pointing to existing statute that um, pretty clearly says the second, and, and, and it is wildly open-ended. It was written in, it's in the 1993 Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. Uh, Congress wanted the Department of Education to design an income-driven repayment plan, and they put no parameters on it whatsoever, other than loan forgiveness shall not occur any later than 25 years. So it can, it can occur as soon as you would like it to occur. <laughs> um, I mean, there's nothing in the statute to prevent them from forgiving the loans after one month of payments, really. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I, th there's a lot of blame here on Congress for, for writing a, a very open-ended 
law. Um, I, I think having gone back and, and looked at some of the, the hearing transcripts that led to the creation of, the, of that particular statute, the, the thinking at the time was that the, that the secretary would design a plan that was sort of budget neutral and would cross subsidize, you know, where some people pay less, some people pay more. Um, and in fact, the Clinton administration at the time, when asked in a hearing before the Senate Help Committee, um, how much would something like this cost if we gave you this authority? And the Clinton administration uh, official testifying said, we view it as a wash. Um, yep, there you have it, right? So, and so Congress said, oh, okay. I guess they're, they're, no one would abuse this. If they're intending that it wouldn't cost anything. Might as well write it open-ended. Uh, and, and so that's, that's how we have, have the situation. But I think we, one other observation on this is I keep thinking about in terms of like, uh, you know, sort of lessons learned here and, and things coming, coming down the pike, right? We, you know, we have a, a problem of sort of resentment around student debt in this country. I think that there's a chance that that gets worse based on something that Andrew said, right? where we saw how someone pursuing a degree where their earnings are going to be low, they don't have to pay off the loan. They get it entirely forgiven. But the nurse, who has good earnings and is pursuing a career that's going to pay off, has to fully repay the loan. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not a system that is, is necessarily going to make people sort of support the student loans and look at, look at them any more favorably. I think it might create more resentment. Mm -hmm. Especially on the part of nurses and engineers, and we had an op-ed on that question not that long ago. Uh, Andrew, so let me caveat this by saying we know, yes, that outstanding aggregate student loan debt is high, right? Everybody knows the $1.7 trillion figure that's out there, whatever it's up to now. Um, but the median monthly loan repayment for individuals is fairly modest, $222 a month. I, last I checked was the median monthly payment. So just a little caveat before I ask you this question about, yes, we have a price problem in higher ed. College costs are increasing. So how do we bring accountability to higher ed pricing? If not, obviously, the Biden administration plan, what can be done? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a great question. The, the thing I really worry about with uh, with student aid in general, but particularly the, the student loan programs, um, is setting up systems that are kind of win-win-win for the, so win for the student, win for the government, win for the, for, for the college. Um, and right now, the student loans don't do that. Uh, so you can have a lot of programs out there where the school is the only winner because they get all their tuition money up front and they get to keep that regardless of if the student defaults and regardless of if the government gets, gets paid back. Um, and so, so that to me is a, is a broken system. Uh, that, that's that's not something that, that that we should we should try to preserve and and, and kind of strengthen. Um, so so the question is, okay, how do we get to a win 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 where it's only in the school's interest to offer programs that are that are wins for the student, meaning the student can afford to repay their student loans comfortably, uh, and where the government actually gets repaid. Um, and so there's there's a couple of different ways of doing that. One is is kind of what I think of as accountability, which is the the, the government kind of coming in and saying, okay, we're going to establish uh, some some accountability thresholds and metrics uh, where we are not going to allow uh, this type of education to be provided. Uh, and you can do it at the program level, so you can say, okay, it seems like at this particular school, everybody who gets a bachelor's degree in finance, studio arts defaults, we're not going to let that 
that program participate in the student loan program anymore. So you, so you can do it uh, kind of performance-based like that. Uh, the other way you could do this is, is with a risk-sharing proposal. So just pass it off to the school. Say, okay, uh, we've got all these, these kind of safety nets for students. Right now the government's paying that tab. Let's have the school pay it. Uh, and, and if the school still wants to, to offer that program, that's fine. They're going to be on the hook if, if the government doesn't, doesn't repay that. Uh, and so I think those are the two ways you can switch from a system that's kind of lose-lose-win to win-win-win. Great, thanks. Paul, just to wrap us up before we open it up to everybody's questions here and online as well. So you mentioned on the merits, right, major questions doctrine. This sounds maybe not like a slam dunk, but pretty solid on the merits, right, that this violates the major questions doctrine, that this is something that Congress clearly hasn't delegated to the executive. But what about standing? I mean, this is the big outstanding uh, issue, right? Yeah, now. yeah, absolutely. And I think you see in the Supreme Court case that uh, the, the biggest obstacle uh, uh, to a favorable victory for the plaintiffs is standing at this point, it seems like. Uh, and so I, I would say that uh, in order to prove standing, you have to prove an injury. Uh, when the government uh, is directing a fire hose of money on uh, spraying money on colleges and on student loan borrowers, it's a little hard to prove an injury beyond, beyond like a broad taxpayer uh, injury. So I, I would say a couple of things about standing. I think states could try to establish standing uh, by claiming that uh, by refusing to charge interest, uh, the Biden administration is depriving them of tax revenue when they can, uh, uh, when they tax uh, uh, forgiven student loans. Uh, they're losing out on that revenue that, that would have uh, constituted the interest. But let's not forget that this is a huge student loan uh, forgiveness statute, basically. Uh, uh, you get your student loan forgiven after 10 years uh, in in many circumstances. So I think states will experience a windfall uh, uh, in terms of tax revenue uh, based on the forgiveness that will happen under this rule. Uh, I think student loan servicers uh, or states on their behalf are going to struggle to, uh, to establish standing or establish an injury uh, because they're going to get so much more business uh, from under the IDR plan. Uh, people who ordinarily would not have funded their uh, college educations through student loans would be leaving leaving money on the table, as we heard. Uh, so it would be hard for student loan servicers to say that all of this business is uh, uh, actually an injury. I think this is, again, I, I, I keep on putting Congress and houses of Congress on the spot. This could be a place where uh, uh, Congress or House of Congress might have to step in uh, in the litigation context, say, uh, executive branch, you're acting uh, beyond the scope of your authority uh, based on the uh, major questions doctrine uh, or based on uh, the, the its uh, appropriations authority, um, where obviously the executive branch can't write checks that were never authorized by, by Congress. Um, so that might be another uh, area where Congress has to play a role. There's hope. Great. Thanks. Well, we want to open it up to your questions and any questions we have online. If you have a question, raise your hand. We have a mic that will come around to you. Or if no brave souls, we'll take a, okay, we've got one in the front. Uh, Bobby, down in the front here. Oh, perfect. Hey there, Steve Taylor with Stand Together Trust. So Jason, you talked about in the 90s, we had a Clinton administration official talk about this being a cost neutral intent. Paul, as you think about any legal strategy, does that play into sort of the intent behind the program and how the current administration is exceeding that authority that 
uh, the, I guess, exceeding the initial intent created under that statute. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that that is going to be strong evidence that Congress never intended uh, to create a program uh, that that was not, you know, rev revenue neutral, uh, that it never intended to create a program that was so generous that it effectively behaved um, as a uh, as an untargeted uh, grant program. Um, I, I think this practice uh, of uh, agencies using statutes that have existed for a long time to fulfill their political priorities uh, and campaign promises uh, is something that the Supreme Court is scrutinizing in the past few years. Few years and I think it's signaled uh, that it's going to uh, take a very close look uh, at, at what the statute uh, originally meant. I think that's true in a lot of contexts, and I think it's uh, definitely true in the Higher Education Act context. Great. Other questions here? I mean, I would just, I would just add to that though that I mean, you can go if you, you go and re read the statute, you can look up the the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993 and search for income contingent repayment, and it will bring you to the very short statute, <laughs> the very very few lines. And I mean, it is it's it's very open ended. Uh, it's just that the payment plan has to be based on the borrower's income, and it doesn't say the how much of their income. Um, Paul and I were talking, though, but before this about, you know, it's interesting. I mean, like sort of suppose the Biden administration had, because I, I believe they, you know, at least if you read the statute, it looks like they could have done this, that they could have provided the loan forgiveness with, with after one year of payment and on 1% of their income. Hmm. Um, I mean, and... I, I have to sort of, sort of like imagine like what might have happened if, if that's the approach they took. You know, I think that people might say, well, that well, that's crazy. I mean, well, it's just sort of, I mean, some, I mean, I mean, I showed you some of these charts. I mean, this is fairly um, a fairly aggressive what they're doing now and a very major change. So um, I, I wonder if that might have gotten someone's attention. There might have been more political pushback, but. But again, I still think the statute seems to suggest that they, they could do that. So again, I go back to like sort of saying, you know, the lesson for Congress is, is um, you know, write tighter laws. <laughs> Great. Any online? Yeah, we had some sent in. Um, here's one. How reversible are the changes in forgiveness terms? Suppose that the administration, the next administration, wants to go back to the old re repayment requirements. Could the new administration do that, or would that constitute a taking? Uh, I guess, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that it would constitute any constitutional uh, issue to uh, go back uh, and and reformulate the loan terms uh, uh, the way that they the way that they currently uh, the way that they currently are. Um, so I certainly do think that a future administration. Uh, uh, could do that, and I think that raises um, I think that raises another problem with uh, this this proposed rule, and it's this kind of uh, I'm going to I'm going to borrow a phrase uh, uh, from one of my colleagues. Uh, uh, executive ping pong between administrations just bouncing back and forth. People don't know what to predict, uh, you know, based on what the previous administration uh, does. So I think really borrowers are put in this position where, uh, you know, uh, if a court strikes this down or if the next administration overturns this, uh, what position am I going to be in? And it's going to be very difficult to uh, do any long term 
uh, uh, planning, uh, unfortunately, based on based on these rules. Other thoughts? Yeah, I think it would be difficult for a future administration to reverse it for borrowers who have already enrolled in that income in the, in the new income-based repayment plan because I think they would quite credibly say, you know, I borrowed loans under the expectation that this super generous repayment plan would be available to me, and you can't then just take it away. If that's not a legal issue, it's certainly a big political issue. I think it would be easier to end to end the new, uh, more generous uh, income-driven repayment plan for new borrowers as of 2025 or whenever the new president uh, takes office. But then you uh, face the issue where if this you still have this very open-ended uh, statutory authority, four years later, the next president comes into office, they could just go back to the um, to go go back again to the very generous uh, uh, Biden version of income-driven repayment. And so you do have this uh, ping-pong, but it's an asymmetrical ping-pong in which you can always make it uh, more generous for current borrowers, but it's very difficult to then claw back those benefits for current borrowers. The one, uh, the one wild card still out there is uh, the taxation of the forgiven amount at the at the end. So until until this administration, if you got your loans forgiven, that was considered taxable income, um, and and that would usually jump you up into a pretty high tax bracket. Um, and so the current administration has gotten rid of that until 2025. Um, so the next administration or, or whatever could basically say, OK, you can we're going to re-implement the, the taxation of the of the forgiveness. Uh, and also, you don't get the forgiveness until you pay the tax, um, because that's that's going to be a huge burden. That, that, that could be like a third or even a fourth or uh, 40 percent of the um, uh, of the total amount forgiven, uh, which is going to be hard for a lot of students to come up with if they were qualifying for this plan. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, they did before, they did the taxation piece before these changes. That is correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was they part did. of one of the uh, coronavirus. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting here is that, you know, a lot of the debt that you would get forgiven under the old plans would be unpaid accrued interest. Mm -hmm. um, but now the unpaid accrued interest each month is now being canceled each month. Uh, and and what I think is interesting there is that that's not considered taxable income, even when the statute goes back to that. That is interesting. It is. You're right. What, is, yeah. what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I once I once asked a, I once asked somebody at the Department of Education, well, why is that not considered taxable income when you have the interest forgiven? Uh, and they said, well, we're interpreting the statute um, in a way that the uh, the secretary never charges the interest, so it's never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do that. <laughs> and, and I would I would just say I don't think that uh, the uh, that is another definite uh, basis for challenge uh, of this rule is that I don't think that anything in the statute gives the secretary or the department the authority just to refuse to charge interest. Now they can always point to the text of uh, uh, the statute and just say this gives us the power to do whatever we whatever we want. Uh, but in in that case, uh, you know, I, I think that we have some non-delegation concerns. Uh, we have, I mean, there's no intelligible principle uh, uh, for, for the department to operate under. So I think that's another very potential legal challenge. The statute actually requires any accrued interest to be included, um, you know, in in a borrower's balance. Um, so so I think that's a strong strong potential challenge. And, and quickly, before I turn back to the question, so the pause on repayments, Jason, you made me think about that. So this is cost $5 billion a month, right? That will, and Paul, depending on how the court holds what they hold ultimately on forgiveness, that's going to impact repayment when that kicks off, et cetera, right? 
I believe that. I believe that's right. Yeah. But I, yeah. I think it's uh, 60 days after um, yeah, 30, that Supreme Court decision. Yeah. 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 Right. And I don't think this plan will be available to borrowers yeah. quite that soon. Uh, I mean, we're also talking here as if this, this plan is sort of locked in. The administration has not yet released their final, final version. They released a version, and then they did their 30, 30 days comment period. And now um, I think they're, they're, I guess they're reading the 30,000 comments. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, then they're still free to make changes to it before they put it in place. Is that what they got, 30,000? I, I, th I think it was something on, on that one, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, sir. Yes. Um, so setting aside. Oh, actually, could you wait on the mic? I'm sorry for our online viewers. <laughs> Can you hear me? That's good. Okay. Um, so setting aside um, for in a world where accountability couldn't happen, risk sharing couldn't happen, loan limits couldn't happen, <laughs> which would be unfortunate. Um, how could you design, like what kind of repayment system, if you could only change IDR, how could you design that to be a win-win-win, as you put it, or... Um, you know, whether that's setting the forgiveness terms, like uh, whether that's, you know, monthly payments, how would you all kind of design a system that would kind of create better incentives and reduce costs for taxpayers? And to be clear, you're ruling and out for, accountability risk sharing, changing <laughs> the <moment. laughs> Are there changes to IDR that you could do that would be? Those are my three go-tos. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, so one thing you could do is so you say, okay, the statute says forgiveness has to happen by 25 years. So you set 25 years as the forgiveness date. You then calculate the percent of income owed that is necessary to fully repay by 25 years. Um, and so you'd basically, you could have a differential repayment rate, or basically income share um, by essentially income and debt levels. By program, I think the biggest uh, one of the biggest issues with IDR is that basically how much you pay bears no relationship to how much you borrow. Uh, if you're getting forgiveness, so I think that if you're ruling out all those options, the best option would be to have set, modify IDR in some way such that ha your payments are at least somewhat linked to your balance. So say maybe like Jeb Bush proposed way back in the day, one percent for every of income for every ten thousand you borrow, or something like that, um, just so that there is some some cost discipline there to say that okay, there is some disincentive to borrowing more, and for the college, there is some disincentive to charging more. Uh, I, I would say so. You know, the, the answer to that is so the administration is doing they're moving four things in this plan. I think Andrew alluded to this that like you're you know any one of them is is a big change and they're doing four right they're reducing the amount or they're increasing the amount of income that is exempt from the payment calculation they're reducing the share of your income that you have to pay they're canceling any unpaid interest each month and then they're increasing the time to loan forgiveness to as early as ten years I think if you did just two of any of the four uh, you would have something that looked I would say more rational. So I think the issue is that they're doing all four of those things. You really can just pick any two, whichever two you'd like, uh, and you think are the most important. Uh, and I think that gets you to a, a, a much more rational um, and targeted uh, program. Well, and they, they took those four levels and they moved them to the most generous settings ever in history. 
all of them simultaneously. Uh, in actuality, if you make one more generous, you can make another more stringent, and that'll help offset the, the budgetary impact. Um, so, so if you want to forgive interest, okay, increase payments. If you want to exempt more income, okay, and don't forgive interest. That that kind of stuff. right. This, this is what the, yeah. this is what the UK did. The UK has income uh, driven repayment as well. Um, and a few years back, they reduced the amount that you have to pay, the share of your income, but then they increased loan forgiveness to something like thirty five or forty years. That's what that's what they're doing. Thirty five, forty years for loan forgiveness in their plan. We're going we're going the other direction. That's good on the Brits. <laughs> uh, we'll do another online question. Sure. Um, does the proposed forgiveness program apply to Graduate Plus and Parent Plus? On behalf of the taxpayer, should an unlimited borrowing Graduate Plus programs be canceled? Uh, yes, just in the Grad Plus program. Carry on. <laughs> uh, so I believe Grad Plus is included in this. Parent Plus is not. Is that everybody's understanding? Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of kind of getting rid of the plus program entirely. Uh, so for Parent Plus, um, there's kind of like a very under under acknowledged story that the the default rates on that are atrocious. Um, because it, like, like think about it, it you, if you if you are financially sound, you can get a much better loan term doing like a home equity line of credit. Uh, to pay for your kid's college. Um, so the student, the, so the parents who can't do that are taking out a lot of Parent PLUS loans, but those are exactly the parents that can't afford really large loans. Uh, so so Parent PLUS is, a, is kind of scandalous um, and, and it's ignored a lot. Uh, Grad PLUS, my main problem with it is that it's uncapped, uh, which, which I'm not allowed to lower the cap. <laughs> um, so, so if you capped it at a reasonable level, um, it would function a lot more like the, the, like the undergraduate loans. How about zero? Yeah. I, I, great, great choice. <laughs> but but, but I'll, I'll add here that the, you know, the, the Biden administration's um, change here that if you're going to use this new plan with the graduate loan, you can't get loan forgiveness until 25 years. Currently, it's 20. And that, I mean, in running the numbers, that makes a pretty big difference. You know, their payments are lower. Their payments are lower under this plan. Um, but that seems to be in the data that seems to be pretty well offset by the fact that they have to pay for five more years. Yes, praise for the Biden administration. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to, you know, I mean, they, they clearly, they did take some steps to, to, to reduce the, the increase in benefits for graduate students. Um, so, I mean, you know, got to have to give them Definitely. credit for that, as hard as it is. I do want to mention, though, that if graduate students so choose, they can still use one of the current IBR plans, um, new income-based repayment, IBR, yeah. rather than IDR, uh, which will give them access to the 20-year loan forgiveness. The fact is they won't get the 225% of poverty exemption. So if you're a grad student, you'll have to get your spreadsheet out and figure out which one of those is better for you. But you do still have access to the, um, yeah. to the, to the 20-year loan forgiveness so first, right do now. no harm. Yeah. No harm, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Yes, sir. Okay, speaking of which is a preface to the whole incentive for providing. Oh, I'm sorry. Could you wait on the mic? I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Um, as a preface to the incentive for providing these um, opportunities for so many more people, what objectives are we reaching and how do you prove that they have been uh, actually benefited the general public? Great question. Here's how sure. are we measuring all of this? <laughs> well, I think we should think about um, higher education as we want 
higher education to fulfill an educational Hippocratic oath, which is that it should leave you no worse off financially than you would have been if you hadn't gone to college. It doesn't have to make you rich all the time, but I do think that college uh, shouldn't uh, bring you behind financially. But unfortunately, in a lot of cases, it's doing that. So there's a lot of evidence showing, you know, if you start college but don't finish, you're often worse off than if you hadn't gone at all. There's some majors where you're earning less than a, than a high school graduate would. Um, so I think we do need to, it's, it's difficult to measure. I do have a paper trying to measure this and trying to say, you know, what is the actual return on investment associated with each uh, degree and certificate, um, so, uh, which, which you can check out at freeup.org if you want. Um, but, you know, I think we do need to say to colleges, you know, if you want access to these federal aid programs, you have to meet that very basic standard of not leaving your students any worse off than they would have been if they hadn't gone to college at all. Other questions in the room? Other online questions, Bobby? Um, sure. Has anyone proposed a compromise of generous income-driven payment plans in exchange for getting the Department of Education out of the student loan business permanently? Your terms are acceptable. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good question, right? I mean, what are, if we're blue-skying here, what are the prospects for eventually winding down the federal student loan program in the main? Is that something we could hope for 10, 20 years from now, or are we in this forever? Where we've got, I think you said, a fire hose of money. I think Rich Vetter used to say, dumping money out of airplanes onto universities from the federal level. So how do we extricate ourselves from this situation? So, oh, yeah, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> um, I, I think that the, uh, the um, I mean, you know, student loans, like, for the most part, I mean, so I don't think that the, the federal student loan program is ending anytime soon. And, and the reason for that, I think, although I think with the, these changes to the mass loan forgiveness and income-driven repayment, I think that has some people who maybe were on the fence about that saying, oh, uh, maybe, maybe this isn't a, a great approach. But, I mean, for the most part, like, loans uh, you know, offer a lot of college access in terms of buying power for people to go. Um, and generally, if it, people pay them back. Um, you know, and so... I think this is why countries all around the world, not just the U.S., have said, hey, student loans are a, a, a decent way to finance access to higher education. Um, and I think, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of political support for putting something in place uh, instead of the loan program that buys you the same amount of college access. No one, I don't think there's political support for coming up with something that, that does that. So we're, so we're left with student loans. Other than the free market, yeah. Um, so there's there's a great book by a Wall Street Journal reporter, Josh Mitchell, called The Debt Trap, I believe. Um, and he basically walks through the history, the, the student loan programs. Um, and back in the 60s, government accounting basically counted a loan going out, but not the payments coming in. So it made uh, loans look very expensive for the government to make. So as a result, when they designed the student loan programs in the 60s, they had private lenders do the lending. So it was kind of off the government books. Fast forward to the 90s, Congress then kind of updates the way they do government accounting, and now student loans are profitable. Lo and behold, government loans start, or the government starts making loans. If Biden is successful with this plan, governments are going to look costly to the government again. And so my prediction is that within 10 years or so, uh, we're then going to see the government be out of the student loan business. So, so if Biden is successful in implementing this plan, I think it'll actually be just a temporary victory because it will basically set up the conditions for any any kind of reconciliation bill that's looking for money or anything to say, OK, well, if we got the government out of student lending, that would save the government a ton of money. 
Is that, that's such an optimistic note to yeah. end on. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Unless uh, Paul or Preston, if y'all have any final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think I want to add to this discussion that the federal government is actually not very good at being a bank. You know, one of the ways that this uh, new IDR plan came into existence is that a lot of students had felt betrayed by just the administration of uh, student loans in the past. So, for instance, you know, they were trying to get forgiveness under the old IDR plans, but, you know, the servicers weren't counting their payments right, and there was all this paperwork and blah, 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 blah. And so this, I mean, part of the reason that the Biden administration introduced this super generous new plan is to say we want to, you know, make this right because we recognize that the federal government is absolutely terrible at running a student loan program. And so that's what something that I think we need to like to keep in mind is that I think theoretically, yes, there is a place for, um, you know, federal student lending in terms of, um, you know, expanding access to college, solving a credit market failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we do need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, there's government failure in addition to market failure and that the uh, federal government might not just be able to run this to our satisfaction. That's great. Well, I know you've all memorized all the numbers that you heard today, but just in case you didn't, uh, this will be online in perpetuity within 24 hours, give or take, so you'll have access to all of their PowerPoint presentations, et cetera. But please join me in thanking our panelists.